Can you imagine Martin Sheen? <laughs> I can't stop picturing it. Welcome to Sincast, presented by CinemaSins. This episode of the Sincast is brought to you by NatureBox. Start snacking healthy with NatureBox. Go to naturebox.com slash Sincast for 50% off of your first order. All right, everybody. Welcome to the Sincast. This is Chris Atkinson from CinemaSins, joined as always by the voice of CinemaSins, Jeremy Scott. Boom shakalaka. And, Ooh. and from music video sins, Barrett Share. I felt that boom like throughout my entire body. That was my NBA Jam voice right there. <laughs> Came He's right heating up. on fire. Came right through my headphones. <laughs> pounded my ear holes. <laughs> anyway, hello. hello. Yes, yes. Hello, everybody. Um, so we're going to continue this uh, define the decade thing. We're going to be doing the 90s. Get off of me. Ugh, as if. New shit has come to light. You darn tootin'. That was good. The almighty says... Don't change the subject. Just answer the fucking question. Well, maybe I shouldn't have come at all. Jerk off! Yolanda, it's hey, cool, baby. We still just talking. Come on, point the gun at me. It feels Today, like we just did this. It feels like it, but I assure you it's been an entire week since we've done it. <laughs> Somehow we're all wearing the same clothes. That's right. That's right. <laughs> I right, don't know so how that happened. Full disclosure, because of Thanksgiving week and people being out of town, we're recording two episodes in one day. And mm-hmm. that's hence the joking jokiness. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. we actually are wearing the same outfits. We are. And we were here earlier today. We were. I had to come out of my outer shirt because I think I've got the meat sweats. Ooh. Oh, yeah. All of a sudden, I got the meat sweats. <laughs> um, so the 90s are a, a decade that I, I hold near and dear Me to my too. heart. I love the 90s. The uh, and, and, you know, it, it may be because that's the decade in which, you know, you start first becoming an adult. And like a lot of us, we just first became an adult and we like can do things on our own. But the movies back in the 90s, we went through a renaissance. Yeah. We went through a renaissance because it was the indie features that were getting uh, sort of harkening back to the old 70s days. Stuff mm-hmm. that was telling more interesting stories and uh, stuff that they were doing outside the studio system. So we got the rise of Tarantino and, mm. uh, and um, you know, for good or ill now, the uh, Miramax, which mm-hmm. was uh, run by Harvey Weinstein and company, but... Um, the movies that were coming out in the nineties were challenging, you know, studio fare. They were, they said they, you know, you get stuff like pulp. When I saw pulp fiction for the first time, I just, I couldn't believe what I saw. Like it, it, I was like, how have I never seen a movie like this before? Just, it, it was insane how different it was to me. Yeah. And, um, and, uh, and we got that a lot in the nineties with these independent features. Now, uh, a lot of what would happen later on is a lot of these independent companies would start really would start chasing the buck. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of these companies would, would be like, all right, we're independent or whatever. But then like they would start trying to come out with their big, huge hundred million, $200 million hit. And um, you'll see, like, in the next decade after this, a lot of companies that came out of nowhere and came out with great movies started trying to get that big one. Yeah. And they fold. Yep. 
It yeah, fold it's immediately. A, it's a tale as old as time. <laughs> yes, yes, it is. The '90s are near and dear to me, not just because of the age, because um, I know you started working in movie theater in, mm-hmm. in this decade, and we're all roughly the same age, so we're all in, you know, late teenage years, early adulthood. But you know, and I've talked a little bit before before about my upbringing, where I wasn't allowed to go to movies till I went off to college and it just blew up for me. Mm-hmm. So the 90s is not just the right age, but it's when I started really falling in love with film. And in hindsight, I don't think I could have picked a better decade. No. Uh, because of that renaissance, you know, I'd, I'd never seen anything like Pulp Fiction either, but I'd also never seen much of anything. Yeah. <laughs> if that makes sense. Well, you know? no, that makes sense. I, I'm, when I came in, I came into the movie theaters in 1993 and it was... Uh, a few people who had been working at my theater for two or three years when I got in there. And uh, a lot of those older, older people would tell me about these movies that I had missed when I was growing up. Like, I mean, I was 16 when I came into the theater. So it's like stuff when I was 15 and 14, like Glen Gary, Glenn Ross yeah. and Reservoir Dogs. Yeah. And these movies that I had completely just, I'd, you know, I didn't think they were anything. I didn't think they mattered. Like, I saw a Glengarry Glenn Ross trailer back when it first came out or whatever. I was like, what is this bullshit? Yeah. <laughs> like, I don't, who cares? Yeah. <laughs> and then when someone finally came and said, this is a good movie, I, I rented it. And I was like, that's where the start of it was, I believe. Yeah. It was Glengarry Glenn Ross for me because... Because when I watched that, I started realizing there was a little bit more out there than normal. So I had the same kind of deal that you did. I didn't see, had not seen a lot either. Mm -hmm. But it was also a decade where a lot of new stuff was coming out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, for me, like the the big awakening in the 90s was when I first watched A Few Good Men. Mm -hmm. And this was, I mean, obviously I had seen the the big things in the theater like Jurassic Park and Mm -hmm. things like that. Uh, Home Alone in the right in uh, 1990, but then as soon as I got a hold of that Few Good Men tape, man, I could not stop watching that. Yeah, even the opening with the rifles swinging oh, and so the great. opening credits—I'd yeah. never seen anything like that. And yeah. then it just stops and pans over, and we're in the movie. Yeah, um, yeah, I, I had a similar experience with that film. Yeah, that's a great because you get that da 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 that wonderful score in there. Yeah. And it's quiet though. After you, after that stops, it's got that, and then yeah, Joanne is walking in like practicing her speech for for division and everything. Oh man, a few good men reminds me of the early '90s was the sort of the last time that you would see regular movies for adults, basically. Because that early '90s section, you would you would get movies like Hoffa. And mm-hmm. you would get uh, Bugsy and JFK and all, <laughs> all these one words. right. <laughs> you get all these type of movies that you know that were geared towards people who were thirty and above, and uh, and there was some. It sort of started slipping away in this decade. It didn't go completely away. It never goes completely away. I mean, we still get to this day. We'll get like a Gone Girl or something like yeah. that will come out. Something based on a book that, you know, people who are of age have read and everything. Um, but it seemed like more movies were geared towards people who were older all the way up until like the early 90s. And then in The Fugitive, I would count in that too, even though Fugitive was sort of uh, pop entertainment, but it, you know, I think uh, was still more geared towards adults and everything. Um, but like you get that mid nineties area and yeah, everything. Yeah. It starts, you start seeing less and less of that type of movie. I feel like and I could be wrong. Like you could, you know, probably 
present a list to me of like well i mean we were talking about the talented mr ripley earlier in the day and like that's like a movie that i think would have a hard time getting made now unless mm-hmm. it was made by somebody like woody allen or something like that mm-hmm. um you know what's interesting is that what technically what people point to that set off this whole indie thing in the 90s was sex lies and videotape mm-hmm. in 1989 yep and that was steven soderbergh and so you'd think Soderbergh, as we know him now, is this titan of, especially of like the indie drama and stuff like that. He had a bad '90s. Mm-hmm. Like uh, he, re- I don't know if it was bad. It just wasn't well known. He did like Schizopolis and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But after Sex Lies and Videotape, he really didn't have a recognizable title until Out of Sight. And mm-hmm. even Out of Sight didn't do anything when it came out. Mm-hmm. I mean, it took a while for that to even get a following. Yeah. Um. So what else defines the '90s for you guys? Well, not necessarily. Fi- film quality or type directly but the 90s is the decade where the theater industry overexpanded and oversaturated mm-hmm. and the number of screens per opening film started doubling and tripling and as i remember in the early 90s if the film was going to open on 2000 screens 2500 screens that was a lot mm-hmm. and now you get films opening on 5000 6000 screens across america and one of the things that that changed for me was that opening night event film experience mm-hmm. like because there were there were several years in a row we had jurassic park twister independence day lost world jurassic park where there were lines around the block yeah. mm-hmm. to buy tickets and you didn't even know if you would get in mm-hmm. and that is just not the case i went to justice league yesterday opening day yeah. and i didn't even pre-buy there was yeah. no concern there's 18 shows per print yeah. i'm gonna get in there i'm gonna find a seat and that along with that i think we lost some of that magic of you know, because I, I think I've told this story before, too, but when Twister came out, the theater I went to see it at had, like, an overturned car and a faked, uh, like, fire hydrant spurting out water. Oh, really? and there was, like, a tree overturned. <laughs> mm-hmm. And we're standing in line to buy tickets next to this stuff. And there was just, like, this, ah, excitement, <laughs> I can't wait kind of thing. And this that, that, that doesn't happen at all anymore. Yeah. Uh, so I, th- I remember, personally, the 90s for those big event films, and more so than even the 80s. Um, where studios begin to market like one big summer film as the action blockbuster you need to not miss. They've yeah. also diffused this opening day thing by coming out with now regularly Thursday night yeah. showings. The uh, And not even the midnight shows that it used to have. Yeah. We went to a 6 o'clock for Justice League yeah, on Thursday. Yeah, that's what I'm Thursday. saying. Like it, it, uh, I can't remember when they first started doing this regular it had to have been around 2012 2013 and it used to be just the just the major ones they would come out with a thursday night showing it wasn't like everything and uh then somewhere in that 2013 2014 area they just said everything's opening on thursday night now yeah I guess. I mean, I don't know if there's anything that doesn't open on. If it opens Friday, it's opening on Thursday night, yeah. I guess, now. Um, so, yeah, now you get all those super fans on Thursday, and then Friday's still big, but it's not the same, and you have the multiple print issue. Yeah. Uh, the multiple print thing, good God, man. Yeah, they, this happened in the 90s. It was like... Uh, uh, I, I we I was at an eight screen. We rarely ever got multiple prints of anything, uh, but the theater down the street. I think ever I think the most they would get would be two. Mm. 
Uh, but I knew if things officially changed when we got four prints of Godzilla. Yeah. <laughs> yep. And and that was obviously the the worst movie to get multiple prints for because it did nothing essentially. I mean, it did okay, but four prints of it at our theater, there's no no reason for that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that uh, that whole like yeah, let's kit it on four thousand screens and everything yeah. became more prominent at that point. You know what what's interesting about the '90s is that there's such a reliance now on your tentpole movies are almost always going to be comic book movies or superheroes or some sort of like big event and the 90s didn't have that at this point to rely on like yes you had like batman forever and batman returns and and batman and robin and all Mm -hmm. that stuff but those commercially they may have done well but like they weren't the ones that people got jazzed up for it was more like independence day and Mm -hmm. it was things like you know even godzilla to a certain extent titanic and shit like that Mm -hmm. that really got people going it's not you don't see that now. You see people jazzed up for Thor Ragnarok and Wonder Woman and not Murder on the Orient Express well, or something like that. You in know? the 90s, there were still a little bit of spectacle left that people got, got people in the, the movies. Uh, Independence Day's trailer was famous for yeah. having blown up the White House. Yeah. yeah. Uh, which may be the last time, really. I mean, there may be a few other trailers that have had that one money shot that everybody wanted to see the movie for. I don't remember anything as impactful as that. No, that was huge. Uh, um, and maybe it's maybe there was never been anything more impactful than that one shot in that one trailer. It might it might transcend even the eighties and seventies and whatever. But but there was a they could sell a movie sometimes just with oh i've never seen that before and uh and that got everybody in that that shot right there <laughs> was worth every penny they put into it well that and the jurassic park trailer too with the the water rippling and stuff yes. like that uh that was terrifying even in the trailer yeah mm-hmm. yeah but you because you mentioned batman and robin recently uh, the 90s almost killed superhero movies yeah they did Right, and and we can put most of the blame on the Batman franchise and the direction Schumacher took it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there are other '90s superhero movies you probably forgotten: Steel, yeah. Spawn, The yeah. Shadow, uh, The Shadow, The Phantom, mm-hmm. uh, and they're all pretty terrible. Yeah, and Spider Man basically saved that. Yeah, uh, Sam Raimi's first Spider Man movie, which was 2000? 2002. 2002. So that really turned it around. But the '90s basically. Basically, every superhero movie they put out was terrible. Yeah. let's. Well, I could probably spend an hour trying to think of one that wasn't, and I would not come up with what it. What they <laughs> did with Spider-Man, though, was they finally decided we're going to give the reins to somebody who is a, uh, a either a well-known filmmaker type. You know, I mean, Sam Raimi had this reputation for the longest time that he was an inventive kind of yeah, filmmaker. Yeah, a visionary. <clears throat> and... Um, and uh, they kept giving it to people like Schumacher and, you know, I mean, I guess they didn't, I don't think they looked at comic book movies as serious, like anything. Right. In fact, I believe I even heard uh, Kevin Smith talk about this when he had uh, written uh, one of the Superman scripts or whatever that was supposed to be yeah. made. Is that uh, the one with Nicolas Cage? I think so. Yeah. I think so. I, I don't know if that particular script ended up being the Nicolas Cage, whatever that, of course, that Superman lives or whatever yeah. has been, had been kicking around forever, but. Um, but, uh, I, I believe that the original thought in Hollywood was that these comic book movies were not to be taken seriously. So they didn't do, didn't do anything with those things as far when they put Sam Raimi in there, he put Christopher Nolan and all these yep. other people, 
people finally realized, oh, if we take this a little bit serious, more seriously, we can appeal to a you know a lot of people, not mm-hmm. just you know just the comic book nerds and everything. Um, but uh, yeah, in the '90s, yeah, there's not anything really good at all. Batman Forever is actually a singular. Uh, it actually was a uh, a tremendous hit. Back ba- Batman Forever sure. was. Uh, Batman Returns was disappointing to the studio because it made way less than that first one did. When Batman Forever, they didn't expect anything out of Batman Forever, and it ended up, I think, outgrossing Returns, or mm-hmm. at least uh, it. Uh, got close or something. I can imagine that because you think of the cast. I mean, Batman Returns had Danny DeVito and Michelle Pfeiffer Mm. and Christopher Walken. Uh, You know, not the draw that Jim Carrey at the time, Nicole Kidman, Mm -hmm. you know, that kind of thing. Val Kilmer, um, even though obviously the first Batman or Tim Burton's Batman was really well received. Batman Returns is a movie that is, I think we've gotten questions about this before. What's a movie that you saw as a kid that you loved and then you saw again, and you were like, what the fuck, man? Because yeah, yeah. that is not a good movie at no, all. No, 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 no. <laughs> no, it's quite bad. Uh, it's almost as bad as Batman and Robin to me. Mm. Um, mm. It's not bad mm-hmm. for the same reasons. Right. But quality-wise, it's got very little to cling to there. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, the, the the I mean, the comic book stuff wasn't ubiquitous at all. I mean, you had Batman was the main thing. And everything else was side. They tried to do stuff, but it just, you know, Spawn was, I think... Perhaps the biggest attempt outside of Batman, and of course that movie's not very good at all. <laughs> I mean, they got Paul W. S. Anderson to do that movie. Come mm. on, <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, you mentioned Jim Carrey. That is the that is an actor that I I don't think I've ever seen a rise like his in ever i don't think no. i've ever seen anything like meteoric this. yes the uh you know he was on in living color that was and it, as james carey by the way yeah. <laughs> um he was on in living color and i knew i knew him from that when ace ventura pet detective came out and it was january of 94 uh that i was like okay this is gonna be a bullshit movie whatever and i mean i i enjoyed ace ventura it's a it's a nostalgic piece now it's not it's not a good movie but mm-hmm. but that was an unexpected hit. That was an unexpected hit. Nobody expected, you know, Ace Ventura, Pet Detective, to be anything. Uh-uh. And it was, it was, it was a big movie. By the summer, Jim Carrey was a name, and The Mask came out in mm-hmm. 90, in the summer of 1994. That ended up being, and I guess that's a comic book too. Ah, I think it is. Um, the Mask, uh, The Mask ended up doing very well over the summer. By the time Dumb and Dumber comes out in the December or November, it was November, December. Like, think about this. In January, he's nothing. Yeah. In the summer, he's a name. And by Dumb and Dumber, he is a megastar. Yeah. Yeah. And then he's got Ace Ventura 2 coming out after that. And then Batman Forever the following summer. (laughs) That is five movies in 18 months. Yeah, it's crazy. That just... Turn, you know, and then he was a huge star at that point. Everything he came out, liar, liar, was a huge hit. Yep. Cable Guy didn't do as well, uh, but after five big movies, because that was sandwiched in there, yeah, where, like it was non-traditional Jim Carrey, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I also like The Mask, by the way. I mm-hmm. saw that again recently. I, I think you guys have shat upon that film, but I don't like it. It's funny. I don't feel like watching it again just to find out if I still don't like it. <laughs> I remember thinking it was every like. 
all the stuff I liked from Ace Ventura gone, and all the stuff I didn't like, just more of it. <laughs> yeah. It's time to party. Yeah. P A R T Y, because I gotta. <laughs> Isn't that, wasn't that Cameron Diaz's first movie? It was. Yeah. So oh. that Apparently, I think Diaz. they had somebody, the, the, the legend or the real story is that they had another actress uh, in that role. And then she walked on the set as an extra or some crap, and the director was like, oh my god, who's this? And basically replaced... He had the same look as Jim Carrey with the wolf eyes. Yes. <laughs> yes, I, I think so. Um, I, I do remember seeing the trailer, and I was 17 at the time. I was like, holy <laughs> the same thing. shit, I've never seen anybody like this. Yes. But yeah, that was an, that was a crazy me- meteoric rise for somebody. I've never seen anything like that since. Yeah, another comedian that really, you know, cashed in was Mike Myers. Mm-hmm. Mike Myers had a hell of a '90s. Yeah, he, it was one of the only SNL skits to really blow up in a movie with Wayne's World. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. At least to that point. I mean, mm-hmm. I think or was Blues the- Brothers a skit on SNL? I don't know if it was an actual skit. I mean, they may have appeared somewhere. I don't think it was a recurring thing. Like they eventually does become a skit for sure on SNL. Like don't they? Don't they bring them on SNL? Everyone. I think they of actually. Of John were a musical. Goodman ends up being the right. Belushi, but uh, yeah, I think they they performed as like a musical act, especially when Blues Brothers two thousand came out. Yeah. Um, oh no, that's right. They did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they were like the musical guests that week. Yeah. Oh, God, I forgot all about no, that. That's what you want to see. You want to see John Goodman doing the oh, John man. Belushi dance. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but then you had, so you had Wayne's World, then you had So I Married an Axe Murderer, mm-hmm. and then you had- uh, Austin Powers. 1997. Yeah, yeah, Austin Powers. I mean, that's that's a pretty good run, plus Wayne's World too, which is yeah, you know, yeah, kind yeah. of funny too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But So I Married well, an so, Axe Murderer is such a good a, movie. That wasn't a big hit, So I Married an Axe Murderer. I don't think anybody saw that. Yeah. I mean, it, in fact, we may still be the only people <laughs> that have seen that movie. Um, it's a cult classic. Yeah, it is. Uh, but Wayne's World was an uh, unexpected hit, I think, and they came out with a sequel like about next year. <laughs> yeah. um, but uh, you're right, Mike Myers and uh, – you know this yeah the saturday night live train we didn't really cover that in the 80s much we talked about ghostbusters and everything but uh they've really infected movies since the 80s i mean with uh, you know with bill murray and dan Aykroyd and all them in the 80s then the 90s i mean you still have some bill murray in there too but mike myers becomes a star and uh did anybody else come really Hit? I mean, Will Ferrell was, it, but it started in the Yeah, 90s, Will Ferrell was mostly, I guess, I mean, he was in Night at the Roxbury, yeah, but yeah. I mean, that, nobody saw that movie. Didn't, uh, did Chris Rock start out on SNL? Yeah. Uh, he did. He wasn't on it long. Though. And then David Spade and, uh, and Chris Farley. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Farley definitely had, uh, had a, had a big, a decent career because that was Tommy Boy yep. and, and, uh, and, you know, Black Sheep and stuff Beverly like Hills that. Ninja? Beverly Hills Ninja. <laughs> uh, David Spade was basically attached to Farley and all those. Yeah. And then Sandler, too, I guess. Sandler, uh, for sure. Sandler, uh, with, uh, Billy Madison, Happy Gilmore. Happy Gilmore was his biggest hit, I believe. Until Waterboy came out. Mm. God, I hated Waterboy so right? much. Yeah. It's so bad and almost offensive. Yeah. Well, he was the Adam Sandler. Now, now speaking of which, I think Adam Sandler was the first uh, first of the Saturday Night Live, or it might be a comedian, to uh, command $20 million or more on a movie. Oh, really? And Waterboy was the first movie that did that. Huh. 
and you say, oh, shit, they spent $20 million for Adam Sandler on Waterboy. Well, the Waterboy was a huge hit. Yeah, yeah, it made a ton of money. Yeah, it wasn't until, like, little Nicky started seeing cracks in the Sandler. Uh, <laughs> oh, my God. Um, uh, but, uh, but yeah, like, a, a lot of these guys became big uh, in the 90s there. Yeah. Uh, and the comedies are, uh, there's some decent ones in there. Happy Gilmore, I think, is is now considered a classic. Yeah, yeah. I think Billy Madison should be too, but I think Happy Gilmore is, is definitely. I don't did know. I, did I tell the story of quoting Happy Gilmore at a, a staff meeting at my last job? No, because we were we were struggling uh, with the website division, which is the side of the company I worked on, and weren't making enough money. <clears throat> and my boss was like, "There's something wrong here." You know, you go to any McDonald's in the world. And the hamburger looks and tastes exactly the same because they have a process. But our process is broken. Uh, so we're either we're not doing the same thing each time out with each website or the price is wrong. And I just went, <laughs> bitch. <laughs> and it was a super serious, like stressful meeting. <laughs> it was like the worst timing I've ever had on a joke because he didn't get the reference. And the two coworkers who did were afraid to laugh. And I just said, sorry, that was a movie quote. <laughs> Another thing that stands out to me for the 90s is uh, Disney animation's return to form, mm -hmm. uh, where we get The Little Mermaid and The Lion King and Beauty and the Beast all in the 90s, right? Yeah, that was the early 90s. Yeah. The, well, the, the, yeah, hand drawn had a had a huge renaissance in the but early then toy 90s. stories the late then 90s Pixar started the the digital uh, revolution at that point yeah and disney was distributing those before even before they bought them so disney animation as a whole had a, had a very very good decade <laughs> we didn't mention them at all in the 80s because they put out shit like the black cauldron yeah. and, <laughs> and the rescuers down under yeah shit nobody really cares about anymore well they did the and we didn't mention little mermaid which did come out at the tail end of the 80s there ah, no pun intended and uh but then uh then they had beauty and the beast aladdin lion king all in the 90s yeah. uh and lion king is one of the biggest you know mega hits ever like mm -hmm. it and it and it may have hurt their hand-drawn animation after that like you there's people who love you know hunchback of notre dame and there's People who love Tarzan and all these movies. And Hercules. Hercules. <laughs> uh, Mulan. All these movies. But uh, I think that hurt them because they didn't do as gangbusters as Lion King. And I think they kept looking for that next Lion King. I just feel like maybe they set the bar too high on accident. They just it's, Lion King is so good. Mm -hmm. Like literally every person on the planet saw that movie. Yeah. Literally. <laughs> uh, I'm kidding. Uh, but one thing I do remember about Lion King, I was like, that was the first movie I ever noticed knockoff toy merchandise. Mm -hmm. I remember going to the supermarket two, three weeks after Lion King had came out, and they're selling these little cheap-looking plastic animal figurines, like zebras and lions and stuff, in a plastic bag, and it's like uh, Jungle Country or Jungle Lord <laughs> or what have you. And you jungle know Lords. some five-year-old is going to think that's Lion King or his mom's going to tell him it is. And that was the first time I ever noticed that. That was an awakening for me. That's like the GoBots of uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. small plastic animals. I had a animals. lot of GoBots. God love my mom. No. But, uh, but I think they kept looking for that, that new one. One Toy Story hit. I think they started saying, well, it looks like computer animation is the way we're going now. Like, it was a point in the late 90s 
where they actually said that the reason why people aren't going to the hand-drawn as much as they're going to computer animation is because of the computer animation. No. Not the stories. No. It's never about the stories. <laughs> they, it, it, box office slump, it's never about the movies. Well, Rotten Tomatoes' fault. Right. <laughs> well, and here's another aside. I'm sorry to go off the off topic here, but uh, every time there's a box office slump, one of these dumbass writers mm-hmm. comes out with an article about I don't think it's this. I think it's that. Yeah. And they, and they do. There was an article the other day. Oh, not the other day. I guess I saw this about a month ago. A guy was saying that when I go to the movies, it's never projected right. Like they had the polarizers in front of the lens so that mm. it cuts out all this light, which is true. I've been to many and we went to saw that War of the Planet of the Apes. I'm mm-hmm. sure it had a polarizer issue. Um and uh, he was talking about like how how the projection isn't good, and that's why people aren't coming anymore. And so, I I I, I it was one of those articles where I was like, I agree with this guy that the projection is bad. Mm-hmm. But I worked in movie theaters, and people you could point to where there was problems, and they wouldn't see it. Mm-hmm. You could you could say, hey, uh, look at look at how, see how that lamp is that lights flickering on the on the screen, and they'd be like. Nope, I don't see it. You see how those credits are ghosting? No, I don't know what you're talking about. No, yeah, no, no idea. And uh, and to say that the to say that people aren't going to movies because of that is the most ludicrous thing I've ever seen. You're right that the projection is wrong (laughs) is is fucked up. Right idea, wrong conclusion. But yeah, it doesn't have anything to do with and and it's always product. By the way, yeah, Yeah. don't don't ever fool yourself. It's the product every single time. I don't give a shit what you come up with. Sticky floors, people who are on their phones, home theaters are booming. Home theaters are booming. None of those. I mean, some of those are pieces. They're not the whole fucking picture no. Yeah. no if you do something good people are going to come see it <laughs> exactly and they might even tell their friends to go see it yeah yeah i know it's a novel idea like when we <laughs> see when we see uh ne- what's going to totally blow this fucking stupid article out of the water is when the last jedi comes up mm-hmm. like because if that was still true nobody would come and see the last jedi yeah, yeah. but they're going to well look at it I mean, yeah. before it came out, that month was butt, and mm-hmm. then the month after that was butt, except for it. Yeah. Um. So I mean, no. I mean, no. Stop yeah. it. Stop it with that. Yeah. Stop. Stop. Uh, uh, yes. Okay. So other things in the '90s that I recall, it was Independence Day for sure, and it was also Armageddon. Uh huh. These movies uh, are the I think the the seeds of what horribleness we're going to see in the next decade. Hmm. From um, the same two directors, Emmerich and Bay, <laughs> yep. they're the they're all, and even in Armageddon, Bay has like a a part a part in there where like somebody attacks a toy Godzilla because they both were competing that same summer oh, yeah, or whatever. Yeah, yeah. There's no doubt that Bay and Emmerich have some sort of weird fucking rivalry, and it's like whoever wins this battle doesn't have any fucking bragging They have rights. like competing orgies and stuff like oh, that. Oh, totally do. There's like, no doubt about go it. Go to the Emmerich orgy. It's so much better than the Bay orgy. <laughs> yeah, but but consider, you know, Michael Bay uh, is a product of these 90s, but he's also a product of music video directors becoming directors, and that's something that you start seeing a lot more in the 90s. David Fincher, Gus Van Sant. Well, Gus Van Sant was kind of both anyway. Yeah. Spike Jones. Spike Jones. Um, you cannot get more two divergent aesthetics than David Fincher and Michael Bay because uh, they yeah. both made very, very good music videos. Mm-hmm. But they made 
polar opposite shitty well, versus yeah. good movies. Bay was, I think Bay also did commercials and stuff like mm-hmm. that. I think all these guys probably did some commercials. But when I remember Space Jam, when the trailer for that came out, they were real fucking proud of themselves by saying the director was Joe Pitka. <laughs> <laughs> Directed by Joe Pitka. And you're like, who the fuck is that? Oh, he's some guy who did commercials? Okay. There you go. That's great. But yeah, you started getting that you started getting that where uh these video directors were getting shots at huge movies. I mean, Michael Bay started with Bad Boys, which to to this i think people still kind of love that movie i like it yeah um but anything that you see in bad boys does not inform you of what you're going to see after that no again there are some hints because we end at that fucking airfield yeah that's true completely explodes while good guys are (laughs) trying to run out of it but it's it's not the same kind of it's it's once we get past it's armageddon is what it is because mm-hmm. he did the rock before armageddon yeah and the and rock, the rock is, is still kind of i mean it's it's i mean you can see the bay all in the rock yeah but it's not really until armageddon yeah. that you get this what he would do in every movie afterwards yep. yep i mean every movie i think he's done since has an asteroid hitting the earth <laughs> <laughs> well there was even armageddon in Boys too. even in pain and game <laughs> what's funny is we could make two different jokes about two different shitty movies <laughs> oh shit uh so uh what else do we want to talk about in the 90s oh man there's so much there i mean you know you look at the cohen's the cohen's obviously started with blood simple and their uh, rise arizona was a fucking miracle by yeah. the way uh considering he, he always critically beloved they they you know everybody loved their, themselves some blood sample and they liked raising arizona but the like miller's crossing i read an article before miller's crossing came out like the, i think it was premiere magazine or something was talking about how this is going to be the biggest movie that they've ever come out with and it's going to win all the oscars and all that and like it was just you know it didn't do that right yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um it, it wasn't a hit it wasn't anything barton fink which won the palm door at uh at uh, con uh that didn't do anything at all it's amazing they kept getting and then the hud sucker proxy yeah. <laughs> even i mean they just kept getting these movies and and i think what ended up happening was they were so beloved by actual you know studios maybe they got under budget a bunch and maybe mm. they maybe they made just enough money to break even and everything and they enjoyed their movies enough that they finally got fargo yeah and you know finally became the cohen brothers like mm-hmm. the legendary cohen brothers because everything after that since has been met with at least some anticipation it used to not be that way yeah the big lebowski was not a big hit either right and it took forever for that to actually get a cult <laughs> following but uh but then they you know i mean they just seem to they seem to come out with movies that people like and then it includes studios it doesn't matter really how much money it makes it's They've always been that way, but there it's a it is kind of a, a miracle that they got to that point. They got to Fargo after all those movies that didn't do anything really. Mm-hmm. We talked about Spielberg in the '80s episode and how he had kind of a, a better first half than second half, mm-hmm. and how the '70s was kind of his coming out party. The '90s you mentioned in that episode was basically 
where he started hitting homers all the time, mm-hmm. right? Because yeah. we've got Saving Private Ryan in this decade. We've got Schindler's List in this decade. And you had Jurassic Park, too. Jurassic Park, Jurassic- two Jurassic Parks. Two Jurassic Parks. Yeah. You will get a Jurassic Park. And you, Man, well, I, I need to go back and watch. I've, I've seen it again recently, but you guys, the way you talk about The Lost World makes me want to see it again like through different eyes because I didn't like that movie. I oh, it's, I hated it. Oh, I, I don't know what you're getting from what we're saying. He's lumping you in with me because I really like it. You oh. do. You do. Okay. I mean, I, I like parts of Lost World. Mm-hmm. There are some set pieces in Lost World that are phenomenal. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the movie on the whole is not good. Uh, but there are at least three scenes in Lost World that I always love when they come on. And I have to watch it. So, um. But yeah, I mean, you can see, uh, you can still see the master behind the, yeah. the director, you know, the, in the director's chair in those movie, in that movie. Um, Jurassic Park and Schindler's List came out in the same year. That's crazy. Uh, I don't know what happened. I think he may have gotten Jurassic Park done in '92, and then the effects and all that start, you know, took the whatever year it took or whatever. I think they got that all done the year before he started immediately on Schindler's List. And ha- was able to get it out by Christmas or whatever of that of ninety three. Mm-hmm. Uh, this Schindler's List is the first time that he made a movie that you could consider going for the Oscar that didn't feel like he was going for the Oscar. Yeah, it's yeah. subtle, right? I mean, it's su- I as mean, subtle as you could be with that content. I mean, it immediately says Oscar bait when you hear like, okay, here's the story and all that and whatever. But you can tell by the way he he made that movie it wasn't about that no it was personal for him yeah yeah and it shows he's there's no there aren't any stage shots where you're like oh this one's going for the cinematographer award right here Mm -hmm. he's more just it's a very intimate story he's trying to tell it's very important to him and it it comes off that movie's a fucking grand slam Mm -hmm. Mm mm-hmm yeah. Uh, what else did he make in the 90s? Anything else? Amistad came yeah. out. Well, that was, see, Lost World and Amistad came out the same year. Yeah. And then he came out with Saving Private Ryan the following year. Uh, he had three movies in 18 months. Yeah. And it was Lost World, and it was Amistad, then it was Saving Private Ryan. Wow. And uh, two of those are huge movies, too. Yeah. We, we talked a little bit about the independent. I think independent features were truly independent there for a while, but then, like I said... Miramax started to become a little bit more money hungry. Yeah. So and much everything. so that they were they were referenced in uh, Jay and Silent Bob's Strike Back. Well, and, yeah, the, the She's All That when they did, I think She's All That was straight up Miramax films. I think so. Yeah, like they had Dimension, which was their genre, uh, like outlet or whatever, because that's what they came out with Scream uh-huh. and all that. Um. And then when she's all that, I remember getting put in trailers of she's all that, and it said Miramax on it, and I was like, "What the? F- <laughs> this doesn't make any sense at all." That's why that joke lands so well when Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back. Um, but uh, but yeah, they started to become very money conscious. They wanted to get that. They wanted to get all the Oscars that they could possibly get. You know, even movies like Shakespeare in Love, which was Miramax. That's not really independent. I mean, yeah. it. I mean, it, yeah, it is, <laughs> but not really. And Disney owned them at some point too, so it wasn't really like. I mean, yeah, they were autonomous, but right. Yeah, still, you had Disney money. Yeah, you know. <laughs> well, and speaking of uh, Kevin Smith, I mean, he had a hell of a day. Yes, he did. Really, 
I mean, he almost lends credence to this because Kevin Smith is very much engaged on Twitter and like there'll be an article that says why Kevin Smith can't make a good movie anymore. Right. And he'll retweet it and be like, dude, I almost agree with you, but I'm doing whatever I want to now. Yeah. I can do a movie like Tusk or Yoga Hosers or something like that. But his run between now Mallrats, of course, is is a whole different story. But Clerks, Mallrats, Chasing Amy, Dogma, like... He had a really, really good run in those '90s, and certainly, probably his best work too. Yeah, the Clerks, uh, Clerks was '94, and I remember the trailer being on Pulp Fiction. Mm. Oh, and, really? Uh, yeah, they were both Miramax. Yeah, they were both Miramax, and um, and I remember seeing that trailer, and I was like, God, man, what time are we? I mean, I don't think I don't think at 17 I was really thinking that, but it was somewhere deep inside me somewhere yeah. was like, what kind of time are we living in when these are movies? You know, <laughs> yeah. like a black and white people talking, yeah. like it's crazy to me. And then you go and watch Clerks, and you're like, I can't believe they can get away with that kind of filthy stuff in a movie. <laughs> It's unbelievable. I had never heard anything like that in my life yeah, yeah, yeah. when I watched Clerks. I was like, there's no, how in the world is this possible? Yeah. Yeah. Um, now, it was weird because I watched Mallrats before I watched Clerks. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess that's probably, if, if you want an appreciation of Mallrats, watch that first. <laughs> <laughs> because Clerks is so much better. And then I actually went to the Belcord, the theater, to see Chasing Amy mm-hmm. when it came out. I did out. too. And. That movie really blew me away because it was one of the first like true independents. Let's see, when did that come out? 90, 97. 97. Uh, so that was around the same time as um, Goodwill Hunting mm-hmm. and things like that. Um, where I was super excited to see, where I had almost the same feeling as like Independence Day, where I was like, you know, ready to see this movie just because I was so jazzed off of Clerks and Mallrats. And Chasing Amy just blew me away with. Yes, the subject matter is dated and the way it's presented and everything, but the the way it is presented was was very subversive at mm-hmm. the time. Yeah. So it, it killed me, man. I mean, that stuff, it, it even got me excited for Dogma, a movie that I really like that uh, very few yeah. people do. Yeah, I've, I, I gave that another role, like, you know, I don't know, a few months ago, and I just, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's got it's got definitely gotten a lot of moments. Uh-huh. I don't think it's a full movie though. But uh, you know, you can maybe even give a little. I don't think that uh, Kevin Smith's view of Skewniverse basically really started this whole like expanded universe thing. <laughs> but you could give a little bit of credence yeah, to what's that. Funny like, is somebody with a some kind of prominent. Twitter account, I didn't investigate, but they probably have a ton of followers, tweeted like yesterday or the day before, I wonder how long it's going to be until somebody creates an expanded universe, but it's not superheroes. It's just regular people who eventually start crossing paths. (laughs) Half the replies were like, Kevin Smith literally did this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Absolutely. Well, and that's that's the kind of question that you pose when you just, you know, you don't, you don't, you know, you're not thinking about, you know, you're not thinking when you're doing that. You yeah. just, you know, it's like when people ask you about, like, ask you random questions about who was in this movie, uh, you know, on Twitter or something like that. It's like, you have the IMDb, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you have this magical box at, in your hand. I was at the movies yesterday for Justice League. I, I took my friend Jason and his two kids, which I always have fun with with his whole family they, they're really funny people um but we're standing in line and his daughter said which auditorium are we in <laughs> and i pulled out my ticket and i was like 
let me Google that for you. Because she had her own ticket. And I'm like reading the ticket. I was like, Auditorium 16. And she's like, I guess I could have figured that out. Yeah. <laughs> um, One of the things that I find striking about the 90s, which is unlike really any of the previous decades we've talked about, is the difference between the beginning and the end. Mm-hmm. The way that they look. I think technology came along and drastically remade everything. Because if you look at the early 90s stuff... Um, you know, Home Alone or like Silence of the Lambs or uh, JFK or uh, Unforgiven was a, a whole different animal, mm-hmm. but like A Few Good Men, things like that. It just has a different look. It looks like it's washed out more than the sharper stuff that you get with like American Beauty and Shakespeare in Love yeah. in 1999. Um, and I, I mean, that's that's a stark contrast. We could maybe make the same case in the next decade where it really goes leaps and bounds. But I can definitely tell a difference between an early 90s movie and a late 90s yeah. movie. Yeah. yeah, just by the look of it. It's like, I've said this a million times, but it's like watching an episode from the first season of Star Trek Next Generation <laughs> and watching one from season seven mm-hmm. when they have a bigger budget and better sets and better effects. And, uh, you know, it's also, I think, somewhere in the 90s is where cell phone technology finally got smaller. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily, because I think it was 99 when I got my first cell phone. It was a small little flip phone. But like there are literally two seasons of Frasier where Niles goes from using that Wall Street brick phone <laughs> to using a flip phone in the next season. <laughs> and whenever I'm rewatching Frasier and I see that ginormous phone, I'm always like, oh, this is from that season. But then, the, so, And then, of course, I think the Internet makes a big difference in how some of these films are, t- are not only made, but being able to collaborate from different parts of the world, but also you know, what, what types of stories they begin to tell as the Internet becomes ubiquitous. Yeah, yeah. Like The Matrix, does that movie work as well in 1985 before the internet is common and everybody's on it? You know what I'm saying? Yeah, no, that's a that's a perfect time, perfect place movie. Yeah, that yeah. was another. That's another one, but that might have been the precursor to what with Sam Raimi and Spider Man was getting the Wachowskis on The Matrix because yeah. they had only made Bound just before that, mm-hmm. and then there's this big, huge, big budget type, of, almost comic book type of movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, they make that not too long after Bound, and and it's like I, I remember the first time I saw like one of those shots in the Matrix. Like I think it was Neo in the helicopter shooting, and all the shells are coming down yeah, and yeah. everything. I was like, I was like, this is what happens when you give a hundred million dollars to people who know what they're doing. Of course, later on we found out they may not know what they're doing. Um, maybe they just maybe they just lost their way. Yeah, maybe so. <laughs> Uh, but, uh, you know, you were talking about the, the quality of film, you know, there's those, you know, those are those things in the Oscars where they show the technical awards that mm-hmm. we always sort of ignore and everything. Pretty sure somewhere in there, there was probably the reason for what you're talking about. Yeah. yeah. Uh, probably something about, you know, film die, film processing, something like, cause you get Oscars for that type of thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, technical Oscars. Um, and I'm pretty sure that something like that happened. Cause I think film stock started getting better. The way they developed film got, got better. Well, they improved the technicolor. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. oh yeah they sure did <laughs> did you ever by the way did you ever have to did someone ever tell you to go get technical oh yeah this is I th- i'm almost sure i've told this gag before but we used to send employees out when i was a gm new employees on their first night of work would be sent to the store to pick up more technicolor <laughs> mm-hmm. we'd send them to like a camera store or a kinko's <laughs> and then the best one ever this is oh, i felt so bad for this kid because he's a hard worker sweet kid but they told him his job at the end of the night was to refill the water fountain. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I <laughs> had that so one. About seven times I see him carrying a pitcher of water from concession over to the water fountain and he pours <laughs> it in there. I'm just like, how? 
I realize a new person on the job is gullible and peer pressure and whatnot, but how does your brain even think that works? <laughs> what if I peed in it? Is Man. pee going to come out of it? This is like, anyway. Oh, I did that. Yeah. I did that mm. shit. Yeah. You peed in it? No, I peed in it. Oh, okay. Man, the theater uh, employees are notorious pranks. No, no. I had, uh, I was told to fill the water fountains after, and I was like, okay, and then did, and started doing it. And I, I think I was kind of like, how does this work? Yeah. But I'll do it. And uh, and uh, after like two or three fills, they were like, okay, you can stop. Yeah, that's not doing anything. Uh, there was also uh, uh, changing the lamps in the uh, um, the parking parking lot because there's they're way the fuck up there. And like, oh, yeah. oh that's hilarious. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So uh, get yourself a ladder. And, uh, and of course, if you get anywhere near doing it, they start. No, no, you don't want to do that. <laughs> You're going to actually die. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, one of the one of the people that I don't know. We can actually talk about this because I feel like the effects that James Cameron uses mm-hmm. stand the test of time so far. Now, Titanic has moments where you know the the CGI, especially panning over the deck and stuff like that, doesn't mm-hmm. doesn't work. But since a lot of that stuff is practical, it does hold up. But T two holds up extremely well. Or Stan the test of time because it's stan winston hey oh um because you have terminator 2 in jurassic park which he was uh and and i mean we still talk about those effects i know we still talk about those we're not talking about the justice league effects no uh, positively we're not i mean the it wouldn't it's not really until like Gollum that we start talking about really good you know effects and everything and yet, at this point, they're so ubiquitous that when it is good, sometimes you don't even notice that they're special effects. Uh huh. I mean, even something bullshit like Transformers, like yeah. they they get the effects down pretty good in that. I think, yeah, I think so. That what that what we're getting to a place now where bad effects aren't acceptable just because they're bad, but because other studios are doing better. How yeah. can we get War for the Planet of the Apes and Dawn for the Planet of the Apes and then get the effects we have in Justice League? I have no Both idea. of those studios put a couple hundred million into those movies. Mm-hmm. Both of those movies had a bunch of actors. Like, how is how is the disparity that wide? I guess a, a lot of the, the fact that they don't... We, we talked about the practical versus uh, computer-generated mm-hmm. effects a lot. And I, I really think what Chris said a, a couple weeks ago is is really the answer is that if you have a deadline that's set by the studio, and especially if it's in a, a part of an extended universe and you're locked into that, there's just not a, enough time. Yeah. Or they don't want to invest Look, the time to, to make that work. These guys making special effects, they're not horrible at their right. job. They know what they need to do. Yeah. It's just they don't have... I mean, these guys have to be working like 20, 22-hour days yeah. or something. I bet you it's one of the least appreciated parts of the industry and it had it had that you know i mean they had that came to full force when life of pi won those visual effects and those guys came out and you know basically said we didn't get paid shit for this movie yeah (laughs) Yeah, and the studio that made it did the visual effects i think folded after that yeah yeah exactly you have oscar winning effects but you financially can't sustain your business yeah yeah well and and when you have somebody like james cameron who does take forever in between his films Mm -hmm. T2 is a sequel eight years in the making. Yeah. To get, you have to assume that he's just taking his time or his team is taking their time to make sure shit's tight. Yeah. And that it can stand the test. He did have, he did have, I mean, I know this. It's not like he didn't do anything. I know this is not what you meant. Like he had aliens and I think the abyss is what really got, 
I think that's what told him T2 could be made was the abyss. Cause that's a lot of the effects in the abyss seem to be that kind of thing yeah. in Terminator two. Um, but, uh, but yeah, we lost a, we lost a real, real, like, I think if Stan Winston was still with us, we, we he would have been able to guide some of this, yeah. this nonsense that's going on right now, man. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's good. We have guys like Aaron Sims who worked with him and, uh, Rick Baker and everything like that, because his stuff seems to be really good, but, uh, you know, I mean, to have somebody to like teach that to five people and they teach it to other people and so on and so forth, that's lost. <laughs> yep. You know, somebody yep. else. They need an effects dojo where like a wise sensei <laughs> yeah. passes on the knowledge, like the one inch punch. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, Oscar Fair in the 90s was uh, a sort I was sort of mentioned in the 80s. It seemed to like to be the epic type of stuff, but the, really the 90s was a true epic year like mm-hmm. the, the epic decade uh when you had uh i don't know if you'd consider unforgiven an epic but you have uh, Ig- schindler's list maybe although i always consider an epic something that's over a long time. period of time uh-huh. so you forrest gump was a big epic braveheart was the mm. english patient the, and and titanic even though that's over three hours right it's the exact same uh you know it's real time essentially um uh but that that's the last decade i remember regular three-hour movies mm. um and something happened somewhere where they just decided to stop stop making those as much anyway um and it may be this whole like fit as many show times possible this is probably the why justice league is two hours yeah um fit as many show times as possible although i don't understand why that's a, a a thing now though if you have justice league you're gonna get six seven prints of that thing yep. anyway and everybody's got six seven prints of it so what does it matter whether you don't have that extra show time you know they're trying to fit one more show time in the day um, I wonder if Elaine Bennis killed the three-hour movie. <laughs> Could be. It's so long. Just die. Yeah. Die. Yeah. She's right, though. That yeah. movie sucks balls. Yeah. I hate it. Um, but, yeah, you don't see that much anymore. I mean, uh, for whatever reason, all the Transformers movies are two and a half hours. I know. They're making the wrong movies long. Right. Like Pirates yeah. of the Caribbean movies. Yeah. Why, yeah why are those movies the ones that are three hours? <laughs> yeah. I mean, The Dark Tower is, is an hour and a half. Yeah. When it's got such a huge story to tell. But yes, Dead Men tale, Tell No Tales has got to be, or yeah. Transformers 5 yeah. has to be two and a half hours. Yeah. It, so, it, I mean, something like Braveheart, I think Jeremy and I mentioned that, yeah, it could trim off 20 minutes, but I think it's it's overall well paced there's just a few scenes that go on too long yeah i agree yeah um so yeah there's room for it just do it in the right in the right area you know mm-hmm. and it won't even feel like it's long yeah but it seemed like they uh they were really uh the 90s appreciated that long movie and i don't know if it's are these movies i don't know are these movies long because they need to be long i don't know how many of these need to be long you said braveheart needed to be cut maybe 
does Forrest Gump need to be cut any at all? Yeah. I mean, it's Forrest Gump is like two. It's not. It's not three hours, but it's like two and twenty. Wasn't Dances with Wolves the nineties? Dances with Wolves was yeah, nineteen ninety. So it, another it three hour best picture. It too, did yeah, three hour movie. Yeah, and and a great one. Yeah, but still, I'm not sure how much of that needs to be that long. Yeah, like I don't know if I really need the opening battle with his fucked up feet and the boots and like getting in <laughs> trouble and getting sent off. Uh, you could probably do all that with just a couple of backstory lines. But oh, I fucking love that movie. Yeah, Dude, this is this is prime Kevin Costner time, late eighties, early nineties. <laughs> Kevin mm. was kicking some ass yeah touchables field of dreams dreams of a wolf oh i think i'll try my hand at directing and, and direct one of the greatest movies ever made yeah <laughs> yeah. yeah and then not? Waterworld, and then Waterworld, <laughs> and the postman of course Waterworld and the postman were also like three hour long. they were yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah they were uh, he wants to take his time but yeah somewhere in there i guess they decided and i don't know where that happened though i can't pinpoint it what movie was made that was three hours long that, that just was a huge tank job? And then they're like, all right, we maybe need to ease up on that. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. Um, Saving Private Ryan is, is pretty long. Yeah, too. Saving Private Ryan is almost three hours. Um, I, yeah, I don't know. I think with the Best Picture winners, you've got kind of a mixed bag because you've got Silence of the Lambs thrown in there. Mm-hmm. And then you have, of course, the to end the 90s, a lot of controversy with Shakespeare in Love and American Beauty. Yeah. Um, I think both of which are kind of unfairly shat on uh, Shakespeare in love versus saving private Ryan. Yeah, I think is ridiculous, is, but Shakespeare in love is not a bad movie. It's just not better than saving. Yeah. Private Ryan. And they gave him Spielberg, the director Oscar. Yeah. I mean, what are you going to do? I <laughs> yeah, mean, like, fuck you, buddy. <laughs> yeah. Um, hey, fuck you, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> I always, I'm still pissed off though that, uh, and I think you, you agree with the Academy's decision, but uh, Gene Hackman winning over, um, Jack Nicholson uh, for, oh. in 92. Oh, versus for supporting. Unforgiven versus uh, A Few Good Men. That's the supporting actor. Stuck in my craw, man. Mm, yeah. I mean, it's... Gene Hackman's awesome in that movie, I think, though. So is I Jack think, Nicholson. I think, I think the what ultimately it came down to for most voters was that Hackman was older... Although Hackman's not, <laughs> he's closer to death. Well, yeah, <laughs> Maybe. I mean it's pro- it's part of the process. I'm sorry to say that yes, that's part of it. Um, they wanted to uh, award him, even though I mean he had gotten an Oscar before, but like um, Nicholson had already been showered with awards. Yeah, and I think that, and then I think also the fact that Nicholson was essentially in A Few Good Men for like ten minutes. Uh, yeah, I guess so. He's not in it long. Plus, he doesn't have any memorable lines, whereas Gene Hackman points that six-shooter at Clint Eastwood and says, they're fueling their missiles! Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Actually, I saw a Seinfeld the other day where George comes in. First thing he says is, you can't handle the truth. <laughs> and Jerry looks at him like, what? He's like, I'm working on my Jack Nicholson. <laughs> and it's terrible. You can't handle the truth. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I mean, Nicholson had already been, and, he, and I think it was, was it Terms of Endearment that he won an Oscar for? And he was not in that movie very long either. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think, uh, I think everybody might have just decided that Nicholson has gotten his at yeah. that point. And, uh, and, uh, yeah, unfortunately, that's the way a lot of those voting things go a lot of times. It's like, well, he's won before yeah uh we don't really need to give him anything more or whatever it's, it's like a lot of t- carl malone won the mvp over yeah. uh, michael jordan it's exactly <laughs> exactly like that listen when you come to this podcast you come here for basketball knowledge you do Indeed. and not only not only basketball knowledge but like late 80s early 90s basketball <laughs> yes. knowledge. Like, there's always that makeup thing yeah. like they're like you know uh, 
and it doesn't it doesn't happen all the time. I thought Peter O'Toole might win that one year that he was. I can't remember the movie he was. King in. Ralph. Yeah, King Ralph. <laughs> he got nominated a few years ago for something, and and uh, I thought this is it. He's got this is seven or eight nominations. Yeah. They're not going to have any chance anymore to give him an award. He's going to get it, <laughs> and he didn't. He didn't get it, and it's like just like the his whole life right there. He didn't get one. Assholes. Yeah, um, and maybe they were upset that he was in Phantoms. Was, uh, <laughs> was, was he the bomb, bomb in Phantoms? Phantoms? He was the bomb in Phantoms. <laughs> That's so funny to me. That joke, by the way, is so funny to me because I'm pretty sure that in the uh, the commentary for Mall Rats. That's where that start that started happening. That you the bomb and Phantoms. I don't <laughs> yeah. think they said that exactly, but I think someone, Ken, Kevin Smith or somebody, was like, and is like, oh yeah, and Ben Affleck was on the commentary too. He's like, and uh, over to my left, I have uh, Phantoms Ben Affleck. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking <laughs> of Ben Affleck, I just read today he apparently stole one of the batarangs from the Justice League set, <laughs> and the studio billed him for it. What? What? He was telling uh, Jimmy Fallon, and he was like, apparently they're more expensive than you would ever believe. <laughs> <laughs> of course they are. Oh, my God. Is there anything else that we can say about this decade? What's interesting is, can we point to anybody that kind of owned this decade? It's mm. hard. It's, it's harder than any of the, the either two. Mm. It's difficult. Yeah. You know, it's awful, awful to say, but it's probably Harvey Weinstein. It is awful to say, but earlier in the podcast, I thought, well, if we did the Who Owns a Decade, Miramax did. Yeah. And you know, you just can't say that anymore without saying, Harvey Weinstein seems like a terrible piece of trash. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Pulp Fiction, all the Kevin Smith stuff, um, Scream, you know. Nearly your entire, entire independent li- landscape. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't, I mean, there were a few other, like, fledgling new type line of, and stuff like that I yeah guess, i were. mean and new line was new line was around for a while and they came out with mostly studio type stuff they're warner brothers oh you yeah know. um but they even new line fell into that trap that a lot of independent th- uh, studios did because they did lord of the rings mm-hmm. and they folded not too long after that even after lord of the rings that's crazy because they started trying to come up with that next big thing like you have start spending more money and then you don't get the money back and that's what happens um but uh but yeah nearly your entire i mean there were other small studios coming out with some interesting things but miramax pretty much dominated that whole landscape uh, if we wanted to come up with somebody who's not Harvey Weinstein, <laughs> who's who, not who, a terrible, uh, fucking yeah, piece of shit. Um, who would we who would we say here? Because Cruz at this point is is dominating as a mega it. mega box office star. Um, uh, director wise, I mean, you still you may have to go Spielberg, you may have to go Tarantino, Tarantino, but had even Tarantino. The best. Reservoir Dogs, Pulp Fiction, and Jackie Brown is all he had. Yeah, because yeah. Kill Bill was until after two thousand. Yeah, and 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 then he has the you know the segment in Four Rooms, but that doesn't count. It doesn't count. Well, well. from Dust Till Dawn, the best, that's the best part of Four Rooms. Yeah, from Dust Till Dawn, he has the screenplay, and he has uh, he wrote the story for Natural Born Killers, which mm-hmm. he disowned because Oliver Stone apparently fucked it up. <laughs> um, and uh, he he had the screenplay for True Romance, which sold Reservoir Dogs, by the way. Yeah. Um, God damn. So natural. It, I know you mentioned Natural Born Killers in the last episode, but that is a that's a tough movie to watch. Yes, man. it is. Like everything gets progressively 
grosser. Was that the last scummier. episode? Of this? this is the problem with doing two episodes in one day. Yeah. That was the last episode. Yeah, it okay. was. Uh, yeah, it was our uh, when we talked about the uh, '80s and Oliver Stone okay. and got all the way into the other stuff. Yeah, Natural Born Killers is so just a crazy movie. It is. It looks like it looks like everybody involved was on drugs. Yeah, it, absolutely. It looks like that. Yeah. Like, and that was 90s Robert Downey Jr., so he probably was. <laughs> yeah. um, but his performance is manic as fuck. It's, Woody Harrelson yeah. looks crazy in it. Juliette Lewis was always kind of an insane actress. That's a good point. Um, Even in uh, Christmas Vacation. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, that, that movie. She's not crying, Clark. Her eyes are frozen. Uh, but yeah no Cruz has a good Spielberg Tarantino I think uh, I'll throw out the Dark Horse would be Bruce Willis maybe because Mm. even though they're not as good as the original we had two Die Hard movies in the 90s Die Hard 2 was like 90 or 91 and then Die Hard with a Vengeance at the end of the decade he's got The Sixth Sense and Unbreakable and in the middle of all that he does shit like Nobody's Fool Pulp Fiction um in terms of like maybe not box office or total clout, but in terms of like quality of work concentrated in the decade, uh, he would be a dark horse for me. Now that's a good point. Now Unbreakable was two thousand, but here's a here's a question. Now it's a burning question for me because remember how nineteen ninety nine at the end of nineteen ninety nine everybody was like this isn't the true end of the millennium, right? Because it's there was no year zero and all that. Uh, does the year two thousand? still is that still part of the 90s since it's part of the, the way we've been going it is because we've been i mean the the decade beginner o year could go either direction yeah, the previous yeah. decade or the follow-up decade. i mean i i would not be able to distinguish a 1999 movie from a 2000 movie hmm. that's why um, i just lumped unbreakable in with uh, yeah yeah six cents it's just a it's a question i've always had for something like if you're going to say that the end of the millennium didn't happen with 1999 <laughs> and it happened in fact with 2000 or is that its own or, or is it a split decade like 2000 starts a new decade but it's in the other millennium and then another easy seinfeld reference here where kramer and newman both schedule their own millennium new year's parties on the same date until jerry discovers that newman actually booked the wrong year because as we all know the real millennium doesn't start until 2001 (laughs) and newman's like jerry (laughs) (laughs) which makes your party in the next millennium and therefore quite lame lame. (laughs) (laughs) well i uh i think i think we pretty well defined that decade yeah man uh Uh, it's something that we may come back to because there's so much to cover in the 90s yeah yeah um i mean yeah i mean it's there were so this is where the start of where like just tons of movies were coming out and it and it wasn't netflix and hulu and all that it was studios that were just like cranking them out like Mm -hmm. that this was an explosion of movies that were coming out and they were all different we had everything from like you know as dumb as armageddon (laughs) to as awesome as pulp fiction it was a lot a wide variety of things that were coming out in that decade yep this decade has everything. <laughs> yes. Pulp Fiction, Dan Cortez. <laughs> yes, I know. It especially has Dan Cortez. Now, that was definitely the last episode. Yeah. You just called back to the last episode. Good call. 
Hey guys, it's time to talk about Nature Box again. Woohoo! It's like one of my favorite topics. That's right. Absolutely. You know, it's funny. The other day, uh, somebody wrote on Facebook, like, I saw Jeremy outside Nature Box headquarters with a, with a stereo on his head <laughs> playing <laughs> Peter Gabriel. <laughs> That's about accurate. Yeah, exactly. I've been back on the popcorn wagon. Oh, yeah. White cheddar and caramel popcorn. Mm. It's the Chicago mix, some people call it. Mm. I don't know if they. It's good. So it's white cheddar and caramel popcorn in the same bag. Yeah. Oh. It's wow. it's. It, it, I think it was popularized in Chicago because it's all at the the shops around there, and it's perfect to get your salty and your cheddary, and then you get your sweet in the same bite. And uh, if you have a bite like I do, that looks like a softball. A, it's a fistful. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and like half of it gets in your mouth, and the half of it just kind of like rains down upon your shoulders. Yeah. Yeah. Because incredible. you're obviously laying down. <laughs> <laughs> this is healthy stuff that we're supposed to talk yeah. about. <laughs> I had a guy on Twitter the other day tell me he placed his first order, and dude ordered like $200 worth of snacks. Yeah, man. Like, Getting after it. He got on the website and then just couldn't help himself because there's so many things he wanted to try and so many things we have raved about. Yeah. And I was like, wow, that is a massive. That's like way bigger than my orders. And my orders are pretty obscene. <laughs> they got, they're up in their jerky game, by the way. Yeah, yeah. They now have honey Dijon turkey jerky. Holy crap. Have yeah. you had this? No, but it's next It's next to Oh, not. my God. It sounds pretty good. The hickory smoked turkey jerky has always been my jam. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a good staple. And uh, they got teriyaki beef jerky. God. I mean, you're going to be all right. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, no, for this no kidding. I haven't had a store-bought snack in my pantry in quite a while, mm-hmm. uh, and I don't feel like I need them. Um, and you know, I I'm eating a lot of a lot of nuts, a lot of chili cheddar hatch chili crackers, mm-hmm. pretzels, uh, stuff that has you know doesn't have any of that artificial dyes and crap in it. Um, and it's healthier for you than a typical snack, unless you wolf the whole bag down as soon as you get it, which I sometimes admittedly do. But that's the thing. Nature Box isn't promising to be your willpower. Yeah. <laughs> They're promising a tasty, healthier snack alternative. Still up to you not to eat the entire bag yeah. in right. one sitting. <laughs> Indeed. But now, feel free. Now, if you want to join us, where do we go? You go to naturebox.com slash syncast, mm. and you're going to get 50% off your first order. Yes. Right? That's fantastic. That's in, that is a half of what you would be paying. That's exactly right. Mm-hmm. And listen, go to go to that URL, and all you have to do is you go to that thing. It'll say, welcome, syncast fans. All right? And then you're going to go and you're going to do, you're going to get a bunch of snacks and everything. And then when you go to check out, the promo code is SINS. SINS. Yes. And man, you're not, you're not going to be uh, disappointed. There's- well, and you don't, this is, we're not asking you to make like a lifetime commitment here, mm-hmm. right? We're saying 50% off your first order. That's how sure NatureBox and we are that you're going to enjoy it and want to stick around. Yes, sir. Absolutely. Get you some. <laughs> get on it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Let's get on to some questions. Question. Question. I got something to say. I want the truth. I'm listening. Oh, move along, little doggy. What? I don't know what that's all about. All right. Hello. I, oh, this is fun. Hello. 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 All right. La, la, la. I know you guys like to get emails from international fans. My name is Gustavo. Ooh. I am born and raised in Mexico, but currently living in South Korea. Wow. wow. Well, that sounds like is an interesting journey. Gustavo's been a, f- a fan since 2012 or 2013. You know what would be great is if, if this was Gustavo Santalaya, the the composer. <laughs> <laughs> that would be awesome. Is that the guy that did Brokeback Mountain? He did. Yeah, Brokeback Mountain. <laughs> he won two Oscars. He's living he, in South Korea. <laughs> it is like the Spanish guitar for the insider. He loves us. Yes. Yeah. 
Uh, he's been a fan and loving the videos and the podcast. Uh, thanks so much. Uh, what moments in any kind of movie made you laugh and say, hey, what an asshole, without hating the character? <laughs> Love this question. Yeah. His, his is in Mean Girls when a girl is having this super emotional speech about sisterhood, and then the guy says she doesn't study here, and she just gets thrown out. I find the scene hilarious. I don't even know what he's talking about. <laughs> I'm going to cut that part off. What do you guys think? Um, okay, so uh, Jake Gyllenhaal and Donnie Darko has this moment where he's smoking and his uh, his little sister uh, is around and he goes, he goes and just before he lights it up, he's like, you know what I'm going to you know what I'm going to do, right? If you tell mom about this and she goes, you'll put Ariel in the in the garbage disposal. <laughs> and, uh, and he goes, God damn right. I will. <laughs> God. it's one of the best line <laughs> readings of all time him saying that because it's just sort of a, like a little a little pause like goddamn right i will <laughs> um i went with uh albert brooks in broadcast news uh because he's one of the three protagonists he's one of the three we're rooting for every time he interacts with william hurt he's just straight up an asshole straight up dick to this guy <laughs> and it's because he knows what William Hurt represents. A pretty mm-hmm. face, but a vapid mind. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and he's the opposite. He's a normal, schlubby-looking face, but he's got a brilliant mind. He's a brilliant journalist. Uh, and the, the age of journalism is dying. That's sort of the premise of this movie. But there's that scene where they're at that cocktail party about halfway through, and William Hurt starts it by saying, like, why do you hate me so much? But it ends because Albert Brooks goes, can you name all 12 members of the cabinet? Mm-hmm. And he's like, I'm not going to dignify them. No, I just, I just want to know if you know them. Mm-hmm. It's like... You don't have to say them. Just tell me whether or not you know them. He's like, I know them. He's like, all 12? And he's like, yes. There's only 10. <laughs> <laughs> and William Hurt goes, you're feeling pretty good about yourself right now, aren't you? <laughs> he says, I'm starting to. Yeah, Albert Brooks has a lot of great moments like that because I remember it, there's the there's this talk he has with Holly Hunter towards the end where uh, she goes uh, – where he's talking about his son and what he's going to say to his son when he finally sees her again and goes it's not it's like i'm going to tell my son not to stare at sarah because it's not nice to stare at fat ladies (laughs) 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 oh and when they do meet later when he has his son and they see william hurt and he's like who is that i can't remember the phrase but it's like the big disappointment or something like that he's taught his kids to call william hurt names he's carrying this grudge his whole life Uh, mine is in uh, in high fidelity when because Jack Black's character Barry is is a an asshole basically mm-hmm. the whole time, uh, insensitive prick and everything, and uh, there's this emotional moment where John Cusack gets the news that his his ex girlfriend's father has died and it kind of brings him back into the thing, and when he comes out like he's talking to them, uh, to his his clerks Jack Black and the other guy. And uh, they're like, man, you know, what, what's going on with this? And then all of a sudden, like, it, it cuts to John Cusack talking on the phone again. And it cuts to Jack Black going, the night Laura's daddy died. He's <laughs> <laughs> like, brother, what a night it really was. Mother, what a night it really was. And he's like, angina's tough. <laughs> and he starts choking him. Yeah, yeah. He's like, ah, ah. (laughs) (laughs) All right, interesting. I recently found out that Denis Villeneuve originally wanted David Bowie to play the character that Jared Leto ended up playing in Blade Runner 2049. My question is, what iconic roles in movies do you think could have been done really well by a dead musician? Mm, Very specific question. Before they died, though, right? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) 
Because I'm thinking, like, the guy, the guy from Weekend at Bernie's. <laughs> <laughs> did you see, uh, you saw Blade Runner 2049. I did. I haven't seen it yet. How is Leto in that performance? He's perfectly it? fine. He's not in it very much. Oh, really? Yeah. Could you see Bowie in that role? Uh, I mean, you can see Bowie in any kind of crazy role. Like yeah, that. you yeah. can. Uh, he, I think he could. He can always do that kind of weird kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna pick uh, Kurt Cobain for The Dark Knight in as the Joker. Oh, <laughs> I don't think Kurt wow. Cobain. I don't know if he had any acting aspirations or anything. And obviously, The Dark Knight was 14 years after he died. But, mm-hmm. um, but I, I the when I was a uh, considering this question that's what kept hitting my head and i don't know what it was maybe just got stuck on it i don't know but i feel like he could have played that role yeah he the from what every sort of account i've ever heard of kurt cobain is that he was you know he obviously had like you know he was very introspective and all that and whatever but he was also kind of a prankster oh he was goofy as fuck yeah Yeah. Yeah, and uh and i just got the sense that he could be the joker like in real life mm-hmm. and uh and like so he would have been 41 uh when the dark knight came out uh, uh much older than heath ledger was when he did his and i know it's kind of morbid heath ledger actually did die after he did this yeah, did yeah. his role not meaning to do that at all it's just more of a, a thought process there that cobain i think could have embodied that character Kurt Cobain showed up to the Headbangers Ball in a wedding gown. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So in, on MTV, you remember Headbangers yeah. Ball? No, I never watched it, but I remember that the thing happened. Yeah, the yeah. No, he was he was always thing. like when he wasn't, you know, in pain or in the throes of addiction or something like that, he was very goofy. That mm-hmm. was kind of how people described him. So could totally work. Well, that was the thing that uh, in the Guns N' Roses book that you let me borrow mm-hmm. at one time, and uh, he, they said that there was that point where Guns N' Roses uh like axel rose came over to kurt cobain and started talking to him kurt cobain was just like real aloof and stupid towards him and everything it's like that's exactly (laughs) what i mean that's what i think of when i think of kurt cobain here's my only drawback (laughs) if we did this though is that that probably means courtney love's gonna be harley quinn yeah. <laughs> and I don't think I like that. Yeah. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. She's um, essentially Harley Quinn in real yeah, life. Yeah, she kind of is. <laughs> so I I picked a an, a musician that died that I think would have gone on to actually have an acting career, and that's Jim Morrison. Oh. Mm-hmm. Um. And I just chose, I guess, somewhat at random, uh, Hannibal Lecter as the villain that I could see him playing. Now, now pretty much all I know about Jim Morrison is Val Kilmer's performance in mm-hmm. The Doors because I wasn't born one, you know, when Morrison... When did he die? It was in the 70s. Huh? Yeah, it was like early 70s, 72 maybe. maybe so, so, I mean, I don't, I, I, was, I wasn't a fan of their music. I didn't grow up around anybody that was. So th- that's pretty much all I know. But based on how fucking weird he is in that movie, I think he could make a really creepy like serial killer who's also extra intelligent. Well, oh, his, yeah. the, the shows were... Like he's a performance artist is yeah. what is what he was billed as. You know, he called himself the Lizard King and all that stuff. And you know, the the poetry that he would read and everything was all just very cinematic, almost. In fact, their their show at the Hollywood Bowl is a very cinematic show. Um, so I could totally see him going right. into right. to acting. Died in seventy one, by the way. Seventy one. Yeah, that was way before I would be able to remember it. Yeah, it didn't. Wasn't he one of the many celebrities that died on a toilet? Oh, I thought you were about to say at the age of 27. Yeah, she was definitely 27, yeah. Like a major 
age for some reason. But he might have also died. Elvis is the only one I know for sure that died on the toilet. <laughs> Uh, but, I don't know. Uh, Let's see what it says about how his many death. other celebrities that are like, twenty seven. Like Wikipedia, <laughs> I'll go to his death, and it'll be like death subheading toilet. I thought it was like an overdose, or like he he choked on his own vomit or something. Uh, he was found by Corson in a bathtub at his apartment. Bathtub heart failure. Oh, well, that's no good. Yeah, uh, I've got two actually, and one because I don't know if it. I think you could swap out either one. So in Tron Legacy, you've got that awesome scene where Daft Punk is playing mm-hmm. in the uh, in the the club, the bar there, and you've got Martin Sheen is this kind of Michael David. Bo- <laughs> I mean, I'd love to see that scene with Martin Sheen. I, and I got Martin Sheen's name wrong last time we brought him up. I'm just I'm trying to help. <laughs> you got. <laughs> You imagine Martin Sheen. <laughs> <laughs> I can't stop picturing it. <laughs> yeah, Michael Sheen in that in that kind of Bowie esque role, uh, kind of you know prancing around and making all the chaos go mm-hmm. and everything. I always thought that Prince left acting too soon after uh, Purple Rain and the one that, that followed up there. I think he could totally gone over the top and done some like super camp performance like that. Mm-hmm. Having said that, I love Michael Sheen's performance in that, so I don't really want to see it replaced. I just think it could be by Prince or, or in a similar role. Mm-hmm. But what I also uh, wanted to see was more of Sinatra acting when he was uh, yeah. in, in his later years. Can you imagine Frank Sinatra doing something like The Verdict or something like that, uh, where he's in a heavy drama, mm. older dude? Or one of the guys in Glengarry. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think because he obviously showed his acting chops yeah. in many, many movies uh, with the Oceans, Man with Golden Arm, with uh, uh, Manchurian Candidate and all that stuff. Guys so, and Dolls. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, he was good in Guys and Dolls. Um, guys and Dolls, not Guys and Guys. <laughs> but yeah, I think, uh, I mean, even I'm just letting my brain run wild, but even swapping him out with Tom Wilkinson in Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, oh, um, where he could be in like a really interesting dramatic role as kind of a wizened. He could be dude. Alfred in the Nolan Batman movies. Yeah. Man, could you imagine somebody being served by Frank Sinatra? <laughs> Here's your breakfast, Mr. Wayne, baby. <laughs> <laughs> he gives him a wink and there's like a star that comes out. <laughs> what movie do you think needs to be seen at a packed movie theater for the best film watching experience? Obviously, this is something that's it's much better uh, in a packed theater, you don't necessarily have to watch it or it's complete bunk. Well, I kind of took it that way, uh-huh. actually. Um, now, the first one that I came up with was The Room. Now, The Room requires, I I feel like, an audience, although I've heard some weirdo say that they like to watch the movie by themselves. <laughs> uh no idea why um but that's a movie that i do feel like uh you need a big audience with people laughing and yelling at the screen and everything but the one bar none that i came up with after that jackass oh Oh, yeah this movie requires (laughs) a big audience to watch it uh watching at home alone and everything is not the same thing yeah you watch this with 250 some odd people who are all laughing and disgusted and shocked all at the same time. It's the best experience ever. <laughs> like it's one of the best audience experiences that you can have is, is, uh, is Jack is a jackass movie with a ton of people. And every one of those movies opening night had huge crowds. You just reminded me of a new answer for mine. Oh yeah. Um, 
You remember in Hollywood when we got the original Kings of Comedy? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. It's a stand-up special yeah, with yeah. four black comedians. Yeah, original Steve Kings Harvey of Comedy. And Steve Harvey, Bernie Mac, D.L. Hughley, and uh, Cedric, Cedric the Entertainer. Cedric the Entertainer. So I previewed that movie because I built a copy of it. Mm-hmm. Nothing. I don't know. I'm, okay. Crickets. Well, like, <laughs> granted, I knew going in they didn't really make this movie for me. <laughs> I'm not going to get a lot of the humor, probably. I'm watching it because it's part of my job. But then once that fucker opened, mm-hmm. and we were selling that shit out for a good two weeks, and if you went in there one time, one time for five minutes, you would stay the whole time oh, and just <laughs> roar with the audience. And it was it was one of the first times I realized that that, that could happen, mm-hmm. that a mass of people laughing could make something funnier to me uh-huh. than it would appear objectively just watching it by myself. <laughs> I, I would I would go in to watch the Bernie Mac thing, and I would never I would not leave until yeah. it was done. That's how you're, good he was. Stupid son of a bitch. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's like uh, it was like, I, I just this just the story he tells. You know, talking about like like he's taking care of these kids that are not his or whatever and it's like uh and uh they're like looking for some cookies or whatever and it's like it's like then my then my niece came up to me and said where's the cookies and shit (laughs) (laughs) and i went in and one day i caught her i caught her she was up on the chair and all this other stuff and he's like and he's like he's like since she looked at me like is you know what everybody knows what that looks mean that look means that means you're gonna do something to me so i said bust a move <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know it's just he's oh. that 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 routine is so great <laughs> so good i love that shit yeah little ray ray going to nashville yeah, yeah, yeah. we're gonna spot your ass in nashville yes. i know everybody when the car got pulled over they were like oh i hope that motherfucker in the trunk i hope that motherfucker in the- that motherfucker's in the trunk <laughs> oh my god <laughs> fucking love that movie uh, the promotion for Paranormal Activity was brilliant. Mm-hmm. The, it was one of the first ones ever to like film the audience yep. and their reactions to it. Um, and I think it got into people's heads. So I went to see Paranormal Activity the the day that it came out, and I went with like my nephew and my wife and uh, a friend of mine. And my nephew was was younger at the time. And he and I were just absolutely rolling every every reaction shot from from the audience because. It's such a it's a cliche now, but it's such a quiet movie, and it's just these little things, and then boom, you know, mm-hmm. jump scare, something like that, and people would <laughs> all around us, packed audience, and we were absolutely dying. Oh, it was the but... funniest fucking mm-hmm. thing I've ever seen. Um, <laughs> the other thing that uh, that was great in a packed audience was South Park, bigger, longer, yeah, and all that. yeah, oh, yeah. Uh, because. Each it's kind of what Jeremy was saying. Like the comedy will hit you, the jokes will hit you, especially Satan going. If only I could live up there. Yeah. <laughs> and then there's there's waves of other people's laughter that just get to you and just like oh mm-hmm. infect you. It's fucking great. Yeah. All right, you want to do one more? Sure. Sure. What the fuck? Recently found a YouTube video where someone put the Blade Runner 2049, interesting, another Blade Runner 2049 thing, mm-hmm. uh, put that score over the skydiving scene from Godzilla. I love both the score and that particular scene, and the score gave the scene a very different mood, which I liked. Uh, what movie or scene would you like to see with different music selection, and what music would that be? Now, that's interesting, because this is what we do pretty much every fucking week. With the outtakes. <laughs> with the outtakes and the Sins video. Yeah. If we see a sweeping shot of something, I'll automatically, I think we all kind of go towards Lord of the Rings or Jurassic mm-hmm. Park or something like that, and it... it 
it does change the mood and the scene and everything. I get a kick out of it every time that we do it. Uh, so what do you guys think? Well, and and in this case, I think there's a slight difference though with the, what the question is asking because it's asking what would we put from another movie to make it better, yeah, right? Yeah. Is that mm-hmm. is that sort of the question? Um, so I brought up this scene from Jaws before, and remember, Jaws has an iconic score. Oh yeah, but it has one moment in there that I can't take and it's that happy music that's playing when jaws is pulling the barrels around and it's like and all that and i'm like oh my god why is this happy you were doing the whole like jaws theme and everything then you you went into that um i would put in the north by northwest theme on over that oh put Uh, put that music over the jaws scene it's an exciting it's an exciting piece of music it uh it it would convey what's going on the you know the you know he's pulling the barrels and everything i i think the north by northwest theme would be good there is this the one where uh where the plane is coming after him it's the it's that part someone random where these i can't remember what exact part it is it's just that there's a scene where the barrel is you can see the barrel on the top of the water no no yeah i know it's seen you're talking about. oh you mean north by northwest yeah yeah, yeah. it's the theme song oh okay you know the that song oh that's a very good that was that was also a pretty good uh like rendition yeah yeah it totally was (laughs) (laughs) um well i was inspired by outtakes uh of a recent video from the wonder woman sins video Mm mm-hmm and I'm cheating because I'm gonna put it. I'm gonna put a piece of music under a, a scene from a television series, Band of Brothers. Ah, um, the episode when they're trying to take this town and they're getting driven back because the their leaders are idiots and they're not Colonel Winners. And Lieutenant Spears goes, "All right, fucking, I'll do it," and literally runs into the middle of the battle, all the way across the battlefield, all the way to the other side where their friends, the British or French are, or what have you, gives them the message. And then hops the fence and runs all the fucking way back. Now, you guys remember this scene at all? I don't think so. It's presented like a like a Jesus moment. Like he <laughs> should have died eighteen times on this run, but because he was just didn't care and kept running, they were like so shocked they weren't even shooting at him. <laughs> oh yeah, I've heard. I've actually have seen this. Okay, I haven't. I I I didn't see the entire Band of Brothers when it was on, but I saw this episode because that guy's a like a legend. Oh that, yeah, that, it's real. They're all real people. Yeah, it's real stuff. Yeah. Um, and I would take time. Hans Zimmer's piece from the end of Inception, mm. which we put in the Wonder Woman outtake on the beach, but it's that one that goes. <laughs> Um, but it starts out with that and it builds over four minutes I would put that Mm. under that scene and I think it would make it even cooler nice yeah I'll have to send you guys a video of that that, I think that piece of music makes everything I agree man it is one it may be my favorite piece of score ever Mm -hmm. it's interesting because I'm going to use an inception thing too wow no so one of my favorite uses of music especially to build tension is in 28 Days Later. It's the Godspeed You Black Emperor song where it just builds up. Yes, because that's when Killian Murphy's coming out of the hospital and realizing that London is empty and they film it actually in Piccadilly Square and everything. And if you put that over the, the bar scene in Inception and really take your time on it to where that tension is building after yeah. Leo's starting to explain oh, like, yeah. what's going on, yeah. the projections, 
Killian and Murphy. Killian Murphy. Yes. yes. Nice link. Yeah. Nice. And then you have it build up to where, you know, the projections are actually like actively looking over. I think that would be very unsettling. Yeah. And a, very cool. Yeah. yeah. Although technically, uh, Tom Hardy was in both of mine too, because he was in Band of Brothers mm. and he was in Inception. Mm. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, nice. technically. and mm. and Cary Grant was in Jaws. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that was awesome. <laughs> All right, uh, that'll do it for this week. Uh, please keep going to the Sincast presented by Cinema Sins Facebook page. Please keep going to SoundCloud. Uh, go to our Reddit page. Email us. Go to our Cinema Sense Twitter. So on and so forth. <laughs> show up at our houses. Show up at our house. Um, <laughs> don't do that. Yeah, don't, don't show, show up, up at our house. house. In fact, now that I think about it. Um, but uh, you've given us our, your comments and feedback on this episode and many others. Um, that'll do it for this week. It's Chris Atkins and Jeremy Scott and Barrett Share. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. Comment on our episodes on our SoundCloud page. Check us out on YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, and Reddit. And be sure to visit cinemasins.com. Still, we notice it when it's really bad, and we and it seems to happen more the fuck? Was that lightning? Yeah, that was, was lightning and thunder, and it was. I think it literally crashed right outside your window. I'm having a heart attack right now. Do you want to stop? No, I'll be fine. I just need to breathe. I saw it flash right before the boom, and that I I think it probably hit that house next door. Yeah. See, let me let me check and make sure. That was close. That was like Jesus is returning. <laughs> I think it's some it's Steppenwolf coming to get a mother box. What the fuck? You gotta keep that in the outtakes or the episode. People need to know what we just went through. The public has a right to know. Oh my god. That was fr I don't think I've ever been that close to a story of lightning in my life. I didn't even know it was storming. I thought it was just drizzling. It was it was like you said something dramatic and like right over your shoulder I saw this lightning strike. I I I I thought that was a literal explosion. Yeah, yeah. I mean it was so loud. Yeah. That's going to be totally audible on the track. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah it is. Uh do we even know what we were talking about? No, I've lost it. Uh they've got some there there's some sort of um huge ludicrous head somebody's wearing in this in this video and there's like like during the vices 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 there's a part where it's him and and he's got this just expression on his face like like that <laughs> and he and it's like this this whatever whoever it is has this head on and there's like two women all like like grinding on him and stuff and he's like <laughs> it's just funny as hell oh my god he had that song uh vitamin d that came out mm -hmm. did you see the video for that i think i did i don't remember anything about it though well it's just a it he's in he's a patient in a hospital with of course a ton of hot women and the vitamin d is obviously his dick well it's it's the <laughs> semen that comes out of oh his no <laughs> He's like, you need some vitamin D. <laughs> and they're like spilling milk all over their breasts and everything. Uh, That's disturbing. Wow. Like, man, I mean, 
<laughs> I don't expect the subtlety from my ludicrous songs or no. anything, but you know, even even my wife watched it and she was like, "Really? Wow, that's, <laughs> that's kind of. I mean, it's not offensive, but it's kind of offensive. You need some sperm to the face." <laughs> <laughs> what would happen? Like, how would you figure out? who I am or what I do by my search history. Don't you have like a crazy search history? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I think everybody kind of does because they, because everybody's got those questions that they, <laughs> that like, they don't want to ask a human being. Like, <laughs> what is like, vitamin D? Is D it okay mean? to date my niece or something like that? <laughs> or what is this red thing on my dick? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so John Landis, after the Twilight Zone, did Spies Like Us. Ooh, good one. Did Three Amigos. He did Amazon Women on the Moon. He <laughs> did Coming to America. And then after that, that's where it starts going downhill because it's Oscar, ah. Innocent Blood, which I think some people love, um, Beverly Hills Cop 3, uh the stupids i remember that was the my my 1996 was officially when i considered john landis like no longer relevant because the stu- of, is it tom arnold yeah yeah, yeah the stupids and uh blues brothers 2000 Yeesh. um and then he did a lot of michael jackson stuff because he did the thriller video and he did black or white too john hughes died when he was 59 yeah mm. a heart attack just walking down the street in new york well remind me never to go walking down the street in new york again yep <laughs> That's what caused it. It's very dangerous. 